Dr. Anthony, or Tony Jack, is the research director of Anamori International Center for Ethics and Excellence. He is an associate professor of philosophy, neurology, and neuroscience at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Our subject today is faith and science, and on this subject, Dr. Tony has something interesting to say. Our brains have the capacity to function on two different levels. One is the more factual, and Dr. Jack describes it as cold and analytical. The other is what he describes as warmer and empathetic and includes thinking concerned with spirituality and religion. Dr. Jack is a researcher. His university is known for its research. He has charts and graphs and boatloads of data. And without promoting any particular religion, Dr. Jack gives us a scientific defense of spiritual and religious faith. Faith and science? He is saying, in our thinking, we need both. Hey, we're in the beginning of a series in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And last week, one of the things we talked about is that Genesis and Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in particular were not written to a 21st century audience with 21st century scientific concerns. However, this section of scripture has become the battleground over questions about science. And it is well documented that a significant portion of young adults abandon faith when they feel they have to give a scientific defense of their faith, and Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, but are unable to do so. So in the time we have today, I want to look at the Bible's view of science and faith's relationship to it. And we'll look at generally and then speak to it specifically as it pertains to the origins in Genesis. So first, let's define our terms, science. Some people say that to define science is like trying to define love. Most definitions will seem lacking. A Collins Dictionary defines science as the study of the nature and behavior of natural things and the knowledge that we obtain about them. Typically, science has to do with a discovery process that consists of three things. It is empirical, it's objective, and it's rational. Empirical because it's about observation, measuring, and data, the facts. Objective, I mean, you've heard the phrase, follow the science. It implies that the scientist has the ability to be neutral and simply follows the evidence. Pseudoscience is to cherry-pick the data to come up with conclusions you have already brought to the table. And rational, the data and the conclusions we draw from following the science are logical. They make sense of the information gathered. Empirical, objective, rational. When we think of science, we are most often thinking of studying the natural world in front of us in this way. Now, defining faith. We are talking about Christian faith in particular, which is the belief in a divine transcendent creator who is revealed to us in the Bible as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The biblical writers come from the predisposition of faith, and although they don't use the word science, they do talk about observing the world around us, like, and that's what science does. And they propose a united perspective that science leads to something, the Creator, God. Psalm 19 is a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In this Old Testament passage, David says that what we see in the skies is a megaphone proclaiming what God is like through the things he has made. And to look around and consider is to be pointed to something glorious. Who hasn't seen a cloud formation with the sun shining through the clouds that fosters an appreciation for beauty? Who hasn't seen a clear dark sky with the moon beaming bright that captures your attention? 
From David's perspective, creation leads us to and informs us about God. In the New Testament book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talks about the declaration of creation pointing us to God and how human beings have not wanted to acknowledge that. In Romans 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says that creation points us to the Creator. Like a scientist, you can deduce things about God, even his invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature, but there is a willing suppression in those who reject God. In Paul's words, the evidence is so strong that there is no excuse for this. Observation and inquisition into the natural world should lead you to God. Science and faith should go together. Now, the current mood between science and faith is mixed, and general statements are just that, general, with many nuances and exceptions. For her book, Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think, Elaine Howard Eklund surveyed over 1,700 natural and social scientists at major U.S. universities. One of her observations was that there is definitely not an open environment to the co-mingling of religion and science. In an interview with Janice, who is early in her career as a physicist, Janice explains how difficult it is for her and for others who have faith to talk about religious topics in the academic setting. Those she knows who are religious typically don't talk about it openly, only offline, to put it in her words. And to let others know you are a person of faith would likely undermine how your colleagues view your academic work. In the late 1800s, two men in the U.S. were largely influential in painting a hostile picture of the relationship between faith and science. William Draper, who wrote History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science, and Andrew Dixon White, who wrote A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom. And as their titles indicate, both works painted a hostile relationship between faith and science. White wrote, In all modern history, interference with science in the supposed interest of religion, no matter how conscientious such interference may have been, has resulted in the direst evils both to religion and to science. And on the other hand, all trammel all untrammeled scientific investigation, no matter how dangerous to religion some of its stages may have seemed for the time to be, has invariably resulted in the highest good, both of religion and of science. Mark Knoll, author of The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, says that the staying power of White's conflict image has been extraordinary. He says the metaphor seems almost as powerful in some academic communities that equate Bible-believing with anti-science fanaticism. Whenever we react upon hearing of such matters by thinking, here we go again, or more tellingly, if we instinctively lapse into a cheerleader mode and hope that our side in these controversies wins, we testify to how pervasively White's depiction of warfare between science and theology has taken hold. Today, few if any historians believe Draper and White's warfare motif to be true. Well, science and faith have a history, but not of conflict. The truth is that science owes much of its foundation to faith. There are several things in the creation account of Genesis 1 we looked at last week that build a platform for scientific exploration and discovery. 
In their book, The Soul of Science, Nancy Piercy and Charles Thaxton outline this, outline this really well. First of all, the Genesis account shows that God is distinct from his creation. This worldview differs from many pagan religions where divine is intertwined into nature. There's no religious status in, in the objects of nature, nothing to worship, nothing to fear. As Harvey Cox puts it in The Secular City, no real scientific breakthrough is possible until man can face the natural world unafraid. Genesis also shows how God brings order out of chaos. There's not a war of many gods going on with outcomes and impact on nature constantly undetermined. And the world is rational. God is good in his wisdom and brings predictability. Day, night, seasons, plants, and animals after their own kind. This lends itself to study and inquisition that will not be futile. Ian Barber in Issues in Science and Religion says, the world is orderly and dependable because God is trustworthy and not capricious. But the details of the world must be found by observation rather than rational deduction because God is free and did not have to create any particular kind of universe. Genesis 1 tells us that what God created is good so that the material, physical world is of value and worthy to be explored and studied. We do not live in a world that we are just trying to escape from. Dr. Tony Jack, in a, in a TED Talk, asked the question, can a scientist be religious? To which he replies, on the face of it, it seems absurd. But see if these names ring a bell. Pascal, Boyle, Kepler, Mendel. Many of the greatest scientists of the past saw the study of nature as the way to engage in the glory of God, just as Psalm 19 talks about, to learn about God and proclaim his glory from what he has made. They also felt compelled by Christian faith to use their gained knowledge to benefit fellow human beings through medicine and technology. Piercy and Thaxton, in their book, The Soul of Science, say, among professional historians, the image of warfare between faith and science has shattered. Replacing it is a widespread recognition of Christianity's positive contributions to modern science. Piercy and Thaxton go on to say that contemporary science still lives off the foundation of Christian faith centuries ago. It is Galileo who said, God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine in his revealed word. Galileo? How is it that we have pitted Galileo against religion when he himself was religious and many, if not the major number of churchmen were on Galileo's side? Dig a little deeper and you see Galileo's controversy was more about a confrontation with the ideas of Aristotle, some held within the church, than science against religion. The pervading presence of the Galileo myth of science against faith is more reflection about our cultural bent against things Christian than it is history. Recently, I had a conversation with Andy Steiger. He's the founder and president of Apologetics Canada, and he's also been a young adults pastor. I asked him about how to prepare young adults for university and the potential assault on their faith. You can catch the interview on our social this week. He cautioned that if they need to do the work of searching for the truth. As in our Google world and the science of vaccines, there's a lot of misinformation. Universities are not immune. You have to persevere to find the truth. For much of history, science and faith coexisted and flourished. They are good together. Depending on your circle, the narrative today has shifted, often elevating science against faith, if not attempting to completely obliterate it. Dr. Tony Jack would argue against that from a neurological and social standpoint, and I would argue against that from a theological, philosophical standpoint. 
Lately, we have often heard the words, trust science, which is often the kind of lingo used exclusively for how we should relate to God. The United States has placed it right on its currency, in God we trust. And hear me, science is good, and so many good things have come from science. It is needful, but it's insufficient. It is a gift from God, but science is not God. Our trust in science should rightfully have limitations, not so with our trust in God. Now, in saying that, I think it's important to distinguish between the church and God. The, the historical record of those who claim to be Christians has many flaws. But God's record of faithfulness, what is recorded in Scripture and what is recorded in human history, is without blemish. Science will have errors. In fact, this is a part of good science. Theories are put forward, they're tested and sometimes believed, but are still subject to further examination and at times correction. A scientist rarely fully believes anything. And science has its limitations. It is not suited to measure and explain the intangibles which are so important to our humanity. Morality. Like, why do we intuitively see some things as wrong? We don't live out survival of the fittest, but we are appalled by it. Why do we long for purpose and experience frustration when those purposes are thwarted? And why do we hate death? If there's not more than a natural process in the material world is all there is, and what about beauty? You know that guy or girl you have eyes for is more than just a sum of atoms that make up his or her physical body. And why do we hope for things to be better? A worldview that lives only in the facts of material observation and analysis has little to offer here. We need to see the world from both science and faith. For a Christian, there is the necessary belief in the supernatural. This is typically understood to be outside of the realm of science. Our faith rests on the necessity of miracle. At the center of Christianity, the heart of our belief is that God became a man, miracle. In the person of Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead, the miracle. The Apostle Paul says that if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, you are still dead in your sins, and we of all people are to be most pitied. Without the resurrection, Christianity has no basis to exist. And so we go back to Genesis 1. Much has been argued from the text in the scientific realm. In this, we should take caution on two fronts. First, as we saw last week, the creation account, it was not written to be a 21st century science textbook. Secondly, the creation account is a miracle story. God speaks and light and sun and moon and stars and vegetation and birds and sea creatures and livestock and humanity, we come into existence. You can't recreate that kind of history to test it in the laboratory today. And how do you investigate back in time miracles such as these? Genesis invites you to believe there is a God. It assumes as much. It asks you to believe that God created the world. Because miracle is involved, your answer to estimate today the age of the world that God made is not the deal breaker some make it out to be. That God created is essential to Christian faith. But your belief about how God did that is not. This does not mean that what you believe in this area doesn't matter and that we shouldn't wrestle back and forth to get a clearer picture. Christians disagree on the timing of the process, a, a divinely directed evolution or a literal 24-hour, six-day creation week. But there is room for both at the table. Now for myself, starting from the theological religious stream of thinking, I am more strongly persuaded of a historical and more literal interpretation of Genesis 1. And I don't believe that you have to ignore the factual, analytical, scientific side of thinking to do so. It is not a faith 
blind to the facts. Contrary to the popular narrative, there are many scientists, geologists, physicists, astrophysicists, biologists, chemics, chemists that believe that the story is, should be taken in a more literal way. Dr. Neil Huber, who is one of those, he was an anthropologist who taught, among other things, evolution at Wisconsin University. A secular scientist who began reading the Bible and then re-examined his presuppositions about origins. He changed his opinion first to agnosticism about evolution, then to a figurative reading of Genesis, then to believe it as presented, history. Huber says, trying to prove the Bible with science is not the answer. The answer is to start with the assumption of the authority of the Bible, looking at all the evidence that it presents for trusting it. And looking at the evidence, I see design. I see wonder. Hey, while talking about faith and science today, which I believe was necessary, I want to finish by bringing us back to the intent of the author of Genesis and the effect of looking at creation as Psalm 19 and Romans 1 remind us. To see God, to see God rightly and in the things he has made, there experience his glory and his goodness, to be in awe. A while back, we had a young adult visiting us from Europe and we took him with our family to Whistler. He was a chatty guy. I was driving and I realized more than halfway up to Whistler that he was so engaged in his conversation with our family that he was never looking outside. He was missing the grandeur of the ocean and the mountains as we passed by. See, we can get so engaged in the details of creation, scientific analysis and evidence for or against how it happened that we can miss the wonder. And for those who have faith, the wonder has an added dimension. I have a few paintings at my house and pictures, and there's more still that needs to be done in that area, but there is one particular painting that is real special to me. I know the painter, my daughter, Stephanie. And when I see the painting, I just don't have feelings about how nice the painting is. I am reminded of my fondness and love for the one who put this to canvas. And so it is with God. Let your eyes be open to the variety and beauty, both big and small, and the things of, that our Lord has made. Let it fill your heart with wonder and awe and love, because you know the author.